It's about putting yourself in a position to have arguments, to negotiate outcomes. And the second thing is follow the money. Where did the money come from? And that's why it's really important to make sure that the structure itself won't be the end of the section. What you've got to do is make sure that you are processing the transactions properly and documenting the transactions properly to be consistent with the design of the structure. And the third tip I will give you is talking about having an at-risk spouse and a wealth accumulation spouse. And too many people forget to cover the scenario that the wealth accumulation spouse may die. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 210 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. When you review the setup of business or wealth, of course, being tax effective is one aspect you look at. But just as important is asset protection. How protected are personal business assets from creditor action? Where are possible points of attack? This is the question I asked Jeff Steen of Brown Wright Steen Lawyers in Sydney. To give you an answer, Jeff will walk you through nine different scenarios from sole traders, partnership companies and discretionary trusts over a common multi-layered structure to SMSFs and bear trusts. So nine different scenarios. The first scenario is about Bob and his wife Sally. Bob is a sole trader and his business has a one million debt. Bob also owns a one million family home. Is there any defense against creditors? Scenario one, sole trader. Let's assume Bob owns the house, Bob has a debt, the house will be divisible property in a bankruptcy, no question. Yes, there's no defence. Now, if Bob owns the house as joint tenants with his wife Sally, then also there is no defence and the house is gone, correct? No, Sally has an interest in the house. So the question first you've got to start is what is Sally's interest? Is the Sally's interest, even though she's a joint tenant, in a half interest in the property? So assuming that Sally's not a debtor with Bob, it's not as straightforward to say just the house goes because Bob has an interest in it. Normally what you would do there very quickly is to sever the joint tenancy, make sure that Sally's interest is protected If Sally's provided a security over the house so that it's a secured debt, then yes, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about that. But if it's not secured, one of the things Sally could think about doing is taking a security over Bob's interest in the house if Sally's got some other rights or claims against Bob. But beyond that, it's not as straightforward to say just because they own it jointly that it's automatically all available for creditors. I see. But if it's joint as tenants in common, then Bob's share is available for creditors. Bob's half share is available for creditors, correct. And if Sally owns the house alone... Yes. ..have the creditors any...? So this is where it starts to get really interesting because then the creditors ask, how did Sally afford the house? Did Sally borrow the money to buy the house? Did Sally fund the deposit? Did Bob fund the deposit for Sally? 
And if you're a creditor, you're starting to ask questions about is there a constructive trust of some sort where Sally holds the house on a trust for Bob? So the planning opportunity to do that is to make sure that you are setting up properly the basis upon which Sally is acquiring the house in her own right. One of the restructure mistakes that a lot of people make is to, in somebody's case like Bob, is simply to transfer the house and say, I'm going to give it to Sally. And the problem with that is that's a gift and that gift can be capable of being clawed back in the right circumstances. Yes, but only within a certain time frame, correct? Not necessarily, no, no. There are a number of different time frames for bankruptcy, but the worst case, if you do something which is deemed to be a fraud on creditors, and fraud doesn't mean fraud in the criminal sense that you're deceiving somebody, it's simply that you have deliberately made arrangements so that your assets were not available for creditors. And there's some very old cases and one more current case that's more notorious, uh, which deal with that where property was transferred well before any debt was incurred. And the most recent notorious case was the barrister Cummins and Cummins' case went to the High Court and unfortunately for Mr Cummins he decided that tax was voluntary and (laughs) was made bankrupt and, and, and had transferred the house without, at a time well before that he incurred you know, any significant debts that were subject to bankruptcy, but at a time when he still had not lodged returns. And the courts held basically that the reason why you did that, the wife hadn't paid anything for it, the reason why you did that was to defeat creditors so that the tax office couldn't get the equity in the house and the High Court overturned it, notwithstanding that it was years and years before the sequestration order was made. Okay. So a lot of accountants or lawyers or dentists or any professionals in partnerships or, you know, in professional services, they very often put the family home into the wife's name. Yeah. But that, by the sounds of it, is not a watertight defence against creditors. It's not watertight, but it's whenever you're dealing with a position about asset protection, the rule to remember is nothing is perfect. If you are shown to do something for asset protection reasons alone, it will be set aside. I shouldn't say will be set aside. It could be set aside. You're at risk. It's all about putting yourself in a position to negotiate with creditors or to negotiate with a trustee in bankruptcy. So it's about saying, look, these are the reasons something has been done. Typically, you would identify other reasons why something might be done. So, for example, it may be a family law reason. It may be an estate planning reason. There may be a commercial reason why something was done and quite often tax reason. And and in many cases, there's a blend of those reasons that go into a choice of doing something or setting up a structure in a particular way. So that's one issue. The second thing that you've got to do is if you are a professional or an aspiring principal of a professional practice, having the main residence in the name of a non-at-risk spouse is a sensible thing to do still. One is that if a creditor is doing a search before they even go to suing you, they're going to say, is it viable, is it worth our while to spend money to pursue this matter? And so if you don't have property registered in your name, then you're not going to be found on a creditor search. The second thing you do is you make sure that 
the spouse in whose name the property is going to be registered is the principal borrower, that is, is the only borrower of the bank, so that the spouse is at risk and can truly say, no, I borrowed the money to buy this property. It may be that somebody's got to give a guarantee, but that primary position is that the spouse has borrowed the money and then all you're doing is looking at how did the equity, how did the spouse get that equity? And then the third thing you're looking at is family law situations as well. So, uh, again, if you assume that there are no creditors on the horizon and a couple split up, then that property will still be the subject of some type of family law proceeding. It also applies that the court order for family law will typically override a bankruptcy proceeding. The one trick that you've got to remember is that you must disclose to the family court at the time the court's hearing, you know, even consent order applications, the debts and prospective debts of both sides. The court must be fully informed. If the court's not fully informed, then the bankruptcy proceedings could override the family law proceedings. You're starting to get a picture that it's a little bit nuanced. Yes, I'm looking for the black and white. Yeah, this is not an area that's black and white. Yes. And it's really important to remember that because it's about... There's a little bit of art that goes into making a decision about how you might be structuring and there's... There's a commercial practical element. Bank Trustees in bankruptcies and, and insolvency practitioners will be criticised by the courts, criticised by ASIC, if they spend creditors' money with a view to on a case where the return will not justify the amount they've spent. And if you look at the, I think it was Reynolds Wines litigation, where the... Um, that was a, admittedly a, a corporate insolvency, but where the liquidators were criticised about going after directors for directors' insolvent trading in circumstances where it wasn't a clear-cut case and they were spending vastly more than they could hope to recover. You mentioned before, if Bob puts the house in Sally's name, then of course the question arises, how did Sally get the money? If Bob and Sally are married... Yep. and hence Bob just gives the house to Sally, then that is not such a good defence because, of course, the argument is, yes, it's in Sally's name, but the money came from Bob. Bob was the sole breadwinner. Yeah, it's interesting, and this is one of the few areas of the law where there are still gender differences. There is a presumption that an amount provided by a male spouse to a female spouse is an advance that's provided, and, and a certain proportion of that will not be recoverable as a gift in a bankruptcy. But the reverse doesn't apply. So if it's the female spouse that's at risk and the female spouse is providing, I'm going to say, housekeeping money to the male spouse, that is potentially a gift that is clawed, you know, able to be clawed back in a bankruptcy. I see. What's the difference between an advance and a gift? A gift can be clawed back in a bankruptcy. An advance can't be clawed back in a yeah, bankruptcy. Yeah, advancement is a, a term. So advance is used in a couple of different contexts. So advance in its way, in layman's language, is probably just a loan. But an advance in this concept is an advance for the maintenance and well-being of, in this case, other family members. And you also mentioned that 
um, in bankruptcy proceedings, it doesn't matter so much when the gift was made. So even if the gift of the house was made 20 years ago, the house might still be at risk. Yeah, it's probably not fair to say it doesn't matter when it was made. It's just that there are different time frames for different tests. So the fact that it happened 20 years ago doesn't mean that it's safe. But it's safer than if it it's had been made It's safer than if it was five months. years ago. Correct. Hmm. And when you think about it, the standard forms require a trustee in bankruptcy to make inquiries about affairs that happen within the five years preceding the sequestration order. So normally if you've done something outside that five-year period, it's not going to be subject to immediate scrutiny. The example we talked about before with Mr Cummins, obviously he was a high-profile person and the tax office were highly invested in the proceedings and so they took the extra effort to say, well, what's actually gone on here? So in that case, they were able to go beyond the five years? Yes, yes. Mm. Scenario two, partnership. So let's say now that Bob, Sally and somebody else, Sean, are in a partnership and Bob has a private debt of one million, but the partnership also has a debt of one million. Sally owns a house of one million and Sean also owns a house of one million. First question, the partnership debt for one million, the creditors for this debt can go after Sally's house or they can go after Sean's house, correct? Are all three of them in partnership? Yes. Or just Bob and Sean? At the moment, all three. Yeah, then Sally's house is at risk. What about Bob's private debt? That's basically the scenario we discussed before that... So just think it through. When you look... So what happens is there's a sequestration order that's made against Bob and a sequestration order that's made against Sean. And for Sean, Sean has assets of one million and he is jointly and severally liable for the partnership debts, which means his creditors in the partnership can prove in his bankrupt estate for $1 million. So he has potentially lost his house. Now, it's, it's not as completely dire as that, but that is potentially there. The other side, so if you assume then that Bob has no assets but has $2 million of debt, that is $1 million of private debt, and $1 million of partnership debt. So from Bob's perspective, his creditors are looking at zero assets, $2 million of debt. So his creditors are simply whistling in the wind. Bob's creditors don't get anything. And Sean will bear the entirety of that liability. Distinguishing between the partnership creditors and the private creditors. Yep. The partnership creditors can go after any private assets of the partners. Bob's private creditors can't go after the assets of his business partners because Correct. it's a private debt. Correct. And now we do the scenario that Bob and Sean are alone in the partnership. Sally is just on the side as a spouse. And now again, Bob has a private debt of one million, but the partnership also has a debt of one million. The creditors of this partnership debt can go after Sean's house. The creditors of the private debt can't go after Sean's house, but they potentially could go after Sally's house with Sally being Bob's spouse. Yeah. Again, you have to divide the creditors of Sean's estate and Bob's estate. So at the time they're made bankrupt, the partnership becomes largely irrelevant. It's simply that the partnership creditors can claim 
in both bankrupt estates. Yes, because it's jointly and severely liable. Severely, that's yeah. right. And so the only problem arises when the what the creditors can't do is collect double. Yes. Right? So, and then there are, are rules which are called marshalling essentially around making sure that an appropriate funding is born between them. So, and in this example, what would happen is that Sean's bankrupt estate would be entitled to claim, assuming that it was able to discharge entirely the debt. Actually, we'll go back a bit. Just assume that Sean had $2 million worth of assets and a million dollars worth of partnership debts, okay, so that he's not going to be made bankrupt. So he discharges the partnership debt in full. That's a million dollars. He's entitled to get contribution of 500000 from Bob. But if we assume Bob's only got modest assets, Sean is participating as a creditor for 500000 in Bob's bankrupt estate. That's basically the way it works. Scenario three, companies. So now we come to companies. Yeah. And hopefully it gets a little bit more black and white. We yeah. have a company who has a million dollar debt. Yeah. And then we have a director and a shareholder. Yeah. Let's let's assume the director owns a house privately and let's assume yeah. the shareholder owns a house privately. And the company also owns a house of one million. Mm -hmm. So of course the company creditors can go for the, mm -hmm. the one million asset within the company. There is no defense Correct. within the company. The creditors can only go after the director's private assets if the director has been shown to be insolvent trading or if the ATO issues a DP and a director penalty notice. That is the only time the corporate veil can be pierced, correct? No. There are a number of times when the corporate veil can be pierced and there are a number of laws that impose statutory liability on directors. So tax is one of them and it's not just limited to DPNs. You've heard in the last 12 months of proposal also to make directors personally liable for GST shortfalls. But if you go to DPNs, there are workplace health and safety, there are environmental laws, there are trade practices laws, all of which impose liabilities on directors. Okay. And just coming back to the GST, that is to stop... Phoenix. Phoenixing, exactly. That is to stop Phoenixing, isn't it? To yes. make the directors personally liable. Well, it's... I think you can say it's part of the Phoenix measures, but it goes a lot further than simply people that restart their businesses. So a Phoenix arrangement is something where, I'm going to say an illegal Phoenix arrangement is where the business of a company is sold at undervalue to related parties and it essentially restarts with creditors fundamentally being defrauded. Just having running a company where it becomes insolvency, just taking on generally the corporate risk, but you're not able to fund the cash flow to pay GST, for example. A good example would be I am running a property company and property development company and the market has turned and so I can't sell the properties for as much as I want and the bank is breathing down my neck and... I have to prepay the bank because the bank won't release its security unless paid them. So the bank, all the cash goes to the bank. I'm still personally liable if these proposals go through for the GST 
that, that will come. Now, there's some other measures more recently in terms of where people who are buying off the plan now need to uh, pay the GST in advance directly. So there's a, essentially a withholding for GST. And that's probably more effective at dealing with that type of problem. But yeah, you're right. It, it is in connection with you know, broadly corporate Malfeasance. Okay, so there are actually many scenarios where the corporate veil can be pierced and creditors yes. can go after the director. So that means a director should potentially not hold any personal assets, but should put them into the spouse's name. I know we are back to the original discussion. It's not 100% protection, but it's a little bit more protection if the assets are in the spouse's name and not in the yes. director's name. Yeah, the director needs to be serious about asset protection, yes. debts are outside of the company, then the creditors of those outside liabilities, of course, can't go after the assets within the company. Normally, that would be the case. Yes. Okay. What about the shareholder? So the shareholder has also has an asset parcel of one million. Can the shareholder be held liable in any way for the company's yes. liabilities? So let's assume shareholder is a natural person, has not given a personal guarantee and has not received an unusual or extraordinary dividend or something where the shareholder was complicit in taking profits out of the company ahead of creditors. In those circumstances, the liability of the shareholder is limited to the capital they immediately provided, pardon me, initially provided, and there shouldn't be any further liability for debts of the company. So if you have a married couple in a high-risk business who are only operating through a company, we come to more complicated structures later. In that case, you would have the husband who's actually running the business as the director with no personal assets. The wife would be the shareholder of the company. She would hold all the personal assets. In that example, yes, that's what I would do. I'd also go to the trouble of making sure that the wife does not participate in that example, does not participate in decision-making. Yes. So the one thing we don't want the spouse to be is a shadow director. So she can be an employee and be paid as she an employee? She can be an employee and be paid as an employee. But she it must make sure that there's no indication that she makes executive decisions within the company. She can make executive decisions, but she can't be responsible for strategy and she can't be making the decisions that would normally be made by directors. So the difference between being an executive and fulfilling an executive function and being a director and fulfilling a director's function. Can you just give me a very brief rundown of director's duties that you would not have to do, like signing financial statements? Signing financial statements, obviously. Consulting with accountants on the affairs of the company and strategy. So anything to do with business strategy, she shouldn't be involved in or said ostensibly shouldn't be involved in. But that's risky because very often in these scenarios, the wife is doing the books, the wife is... Managing exactly. The when the when the the spouse can be the bookkeeper, right? And so there's no problem in the spouse having the financial information. The issue is around the decision making that is based upon that financial information and the approval of the account. So, and again, spouse A can prepare the accounts. Spouse B, who is the director, needs to approve and sign off the accounts. So. In other words, spouse B in that example needs to check the work of spouse A. Heaven help spouse B if you know spouse A has a temper and says, why are you doing this? But yeah, that mm. should be fine. Scenario four, discretionary trusts with individual trustees. 
So now we come to a discretionary trust. We have a trust. Let's start with an individual trustee. Mm -hmm. The trust has a $1 million debt. The individual trustee has personal assets of $1 million. Can the creditors of the trust go after the personal assets of the trustee? So the question is, can creditors of a trust estate have recourse to the personal assets of a trustee? And the short answer to that's yes. The longer answer is when the trustee is has to honour the debts that it has incurred, it has an asset which is the right of indemnity from the trust estate. When that right of indemnity is exhausted, in theory, the other assets of the trustee are at risk because the trustee has incurred the debt. The trust is not a... A trust itself is not an entity. So even though for tax purposes now we describe it as an entity, it's a tax entity, but for legal purposes, incurring debt, entering into contracts, the trust is not the entity. The trustee enters into those contracts yes. on behalf of the trust. Exactly. Estate. The individual's name is on the contract. Correct. And so the individual's assets are at risk and the individual can only have recourse to the trust estate. So whenever you're setting up a discretionary trust unless it's a pure managed fund which is not going to incur debts, always use a corporate trustee, always. Yes. And Australia is one of the very few countries in the world where we've got a tradition of having trading trusts. Most countries, the concept of a trust is simply a fund. And so the trustee knows that there's no additional obligations that are going to come in. The only reason why a trustee may be personally liable is if there's some type of fraud or breach of a fiduciary duty that the trustee has incurred. But in Australia, because we use trusts quite often as trading vehicles, it means the trustee is liable for the trading debts. And the only asset that compensates the trustee is the assets of the trust fund. And if the trust fund is insolvent, then other assets of that trustee are at risk. Scenario five, discretionary trust with corporate trustees. leads us to our next scenario where the trust actually has a corporate trustee. If now in this scenario, again, the trust has a $1 million debt, the shares of the corporate trustee are held by one person and this one person has assets of $1 million. Can the trust creditors now go after the assets of the trustee director? Yeah, so again, the circumstances here are going to be exactly the same circumstances as the company. So the it's only where the trustee or the director of the trustee has incurred debts where we've got trading while insolvent, tax liability for which a director is personally liable, trade practices liability, workplace health and safety, environmental law liability. So it's, it's exactly the position that is in the diagram that we're looking at where it's a corporate trustee, the shareholder and director of the corporate trustee has individual assets it's exactly the same position as a company. If, if the director is personally liable, then that the fact that it's a trust estate is irrelevant. I see. So the big risky position in this corporate trustee setup is actually who is the director of the corporate trustee? Yes, if it's a trading trust. The more common position that you're looking at is the reverse. We've got a company, for example, that's running a trading business but the director of that company wants to preserve assets and have those preserved assets held in a discretionary trust. 
And so the question then becomes, to what extent can creditors of the trading business have recourse to the assets of the discretionary trust? So coming back to this structure of a discretionary trust by a corporate trustee, the big risky position is the position of the director. So if you look at a married couple again who is running a risky business, the director of the corporate trustee should be the husband who is also running the business, whereas the shareholder of the corporate trustee should be the wife. So then in this scenario, the husband wouldn't have any personal assets. All assets would be in the wife's Hands, since the wife is not a director of the corporate trustee but only the shareholder, the personal assets would be safer than if it was the other way around. Yeah, so I'll restate that. You have a spouse that's running the business and that spouse should be the director of the corporate trustee. The shareholder of the corporate trustee in this example is largely irrelevant, but what is important is that the wealth accumulation of that family should vest in the other spouse. The spouse actively involved in the risky business should have the director position, but should have no assets. Ideally. Scenario six, a trading company held by the corporate trustee of a discretionary trust. So in this scenario, we have a trading company with director A, and the shares in the trading company are owned by a discretionary trust, and we've got another company holding the shares as trustee of that discretionary trust. So in that scenario, I would be comfortable if the other spouse was both the director and shareholder of the trustee, because it's exactly the same as the position we had before when we were talking about a pure company. Let's say the wife was the director and then the husband can be the shareholder. Looking at the corporate trustee again, the wife should be the shareholder, although the, the shareholder position seems to be not the risky position anyway. So even if the husband also owns shares of the corporate trustee, yep. that wouldn't be so it's risky. irrelevant, yeah. I might have misunderstood you. Does it matter whether the husband or the wife is the director of the corporate trustee for asset protection? For asset protection, it doesn't matter substantially if the husband or wife is the director of the corporate trustee. Again, it's more about what is that family doing with the profits that have been paid or passed through the trust rather than the fact that the trust owns the shares in the company. Because if there's a problem with that company, the shares that are held by the trust will probably be worthless. So we're not really worried about the assets of that particular trust. What we're worried about is the other assets that have been accumulated by that family. And normally, again, in a full asset protection structure, you'll have two trusts in this scenario. So trust one will be your trust that's the owner of the company. If it needs to give guarantees to banks or some other you know, third party, it can do so. But the wealth is accumulated in a separate trust, could be a superannuation fund, could be main residence in an individual's name so that we can get CGT exemptions and land tax exemptions. And it's really around the structuring of the at-risk assets, how are they structured, and the wealth accumulation assets, how are they structured, and making sure that problems with the at-risk assets do not infect 
the wealth accumulation assets. And that leads very well to the next step, and that is... Scenario 7. Same setup as in Scenario 6, but now there is also a buck company owned by the not-at-risk wealth accumulating spouse. and Sally have a bucket company. Sally is the sole shareholder of the bucket company and Sally is also the sole director of the bucket company. Yes. All funds are distributed from the discretionary trust to the bucket company and then loaned back to the trading company. So under Division 7A, that's there's no issue yeah. because it's just a loan Let's from... Let's leave the tax issues yes. to one okay. side. Yes, good, good point. I'm a tax nerd. I love to throw little I tax can talk bits. through the tax because, again, just from a tax perspective and an asset protection perspective as well, I guess, normally the shares in the bucket company you would want owned by another discretionary trust because it gives you the flexibility later on about how the profits of that discretionary trust are passed through. And so if for some reason, you know, Again, we're assuming here Sally, in your example, will not have a problem with creditors, but you can never assume completely. And, and you know, while Bob may have a, let's say, a 50% at-risk factor and Sally's at-risk factor may be less than 1%, you still want to make sure that's protected. But more importantly, when the profits are coming out, you want to make sure that those profits can be streamed in an appropriate way at the time. So just wearing your tax hat having discretionary trusts owning shares in bucket companies is a sensible thing to do. And then you would have a, a corporate trustee of that trust? or I'm less fussed about the corporate trustee, again, because the shareholder of a bucket company is not going to be incurring any liability. It's a pure fund. Because they're not incurring any liability, individual trustees are okay. That's actually good news because it means the whole structure will have one company less. And then what we do, so if I can just complete yes. the diagram so yeah. for those of us that can't see it. Yes. The, um, so we've got our bucket company, which is essentially going to act as our financier for our group, is going to lend money on a you know to another company, which is our trading company. So as you quite correctly say, Division 7A doesn't apply in those circumstances. But what should happen is that our trading company should give security to our bucket company. And the reason for that is if you went to the bank and asked the bank for a loan, then the bank would insist on having security over the trading company. There's no reason why our internal bank, being our bucket company, shouldn't be in exactly the same position. And okay. nowadays the type of security that gets issued is what's called a personal property security agreement or a general security agreement, and it gets registered under the personal property security register. But for those of us that have longer memories that was a fixed and floating charge. So if the loan agreement between our bucket company and our trading company doesn't have security, then our bucket company and the trading company fails. Then our bucket company simply claims as an unsecured creditor in the external administration of our trading company. So there's no priority attached. That means other creditors will go other first. Credit, no, it doesn't mean other creditors go first. It simply means that we are participating with those other creditors on a pari passu basis in whatever's there. So if you assume that there's $100,000 of assets and a million dollars of debts and our bucket company comprises 200000 of that million dollars, we'll get $20,000 out of the 100000 in assets. How As opposed to the reverse, which is if we had security, we get all the 100000 in assets. 
because we rank in priority to the unsecured creditors. And what should the security look like? It's a general security deed, which is registered under the Personal Property Security Register. That's the PPS. PPSR. Yes, PPSR is the register, PPSA is the legislation. So you highly recommend to register this loan under the PPSR? Correct. I highly recommend security. Coming back to the structure, we don't need a company as the trustee of the trust who holds the shares in the bucket company. Sally as an individual trustee is enough. Correct. We just need a trust deed, but we don't need to set up another company. Yeah, that's right. And more often than not, you're not actually paying dividends from the bucket company to the to the protective trust that owns the shares in the bucket company, so you probably won't even need tax returns until you start to do that. The one, again, there's always nuances here. So the other thing that when I'm advising clients about this type of structuring is we've also got to have an eye on the estate planning piece. So the one of the disadvantages of using discretionary trusts is that the assets of that discretionary trust do not form part of the estate in this case of either Bob or Sally. And so they need to think through, if something happened to both of them, how do the assets of that trust, how does the value that's in the bucket company pass to their children? And that's a separate discussion. And there are a number of different techniques and I don't want to interfere with the asset protection focus of yes. this, but, but it is important that you're, you're balancing all of these things when you're structuring. So coming back to our structure of trading company with a discretionary trust as the shareholder and then a bucket company on the side, two big takeaways. A, the Division 7A loan agreement should have security in the PPSR. Again, in that example, it doesn't need to be Division 7A compliant, the loan agreement, because it's a company-to-company -company loan. Yes, correct. It's actually not, you're right, it's actually not a Division 7A loan, it's a... It's just a normal loan. Just a normal loan. Yeah, but it requires PPSR. Looking at the corporate trustee again, it doesn't really matter so much who is the shareholder of the corporate trustee. Yeah, I'm not really that fussed as to the identity of the shareholder and director of the trustee that owns the shares in the trading company. What I'm more interested in is once we've made the decision to accumulate wealth, so that is income has gone out into the bucket company, you want your non-at-risk spouse to be the director of your bucket company and you want your non-at-risk spouse to be the trustee of the holding the shares in the bucket company. I usually say you've got a wealth accumulator. One spouse is the wealth accumulator and one spouse has the assets which are at risk. And That's the way that you live your life. I'm a big believer in separate bank accounts as well, not joint bank accounts, so that you can actually trace the money through. So if you need to trace transactions, it's quite clear this is what's happened and why it's happened as between spouses. Scenario 8. Self-managed superannuation fund. So now Bob and Sally also have an SMSF, which yes. I put up here because I'm running out of space <laughs> here. Yes. So the SMSF is a trust with a corporate trustee. Yes. And 
the shares of the corporate trustee should only be held in Sally's name because Bob is in this high-risk business, but it probably does it's it even matter completely so irrelevant. Much? Completely irrelevant. Okay. And the directors of the corporate trustee of the SMSF can also be Bob and Sally. It doesn't must matter. Must be yes, the course. members. Of course, it must be. I mean, oh or God, or, or attorneys of the members, but yeah. Yes, of course. Yes, attorneys of the member if the member is under eighteen. Yes, of course. Is there any point of possible attack? Within the SMS yes. so, from creditors. So what we know is that, as a general rule, that interests in superannuation funds are not divisible property in a bankruptcy. And so the only way that creditors can attack super funds if there is excessive contributions or contributions that are irregular in pattern and particularly contributions, excessive contributions that are made just before the sequestration order for bankruptcy. So those are in trouble, but the growth in the assets of the fund, they're not going to be attacked by creditors. Generally speaking, superannuation funds are the best form of asset protection that we have available. It's just unfortunate that we can't do a number of things that we would otherwise like to do with our super funds. But so it's completely irrelevant who is the shareholder of the corporate trustee of the SMSF fund? The shareholder doesn't even need to be a member of the fund. Scenario 9, LRBA with a bear trust. We have an LRBA. We have a limited recourse borrowing arrangement with the superannuation fund. Exactly. And we have a corporate trustee of the bear trust. Yes. Completely irrelevant again who is the shareholder of the corporate trustee. Yes. Completely irrelevant who is the director of of the corporate trustee. Yes. That's it. The limited recourse borrowing arrangement funds, essentially it's the second corporate trustee is like a second trustee of the super fund. It's simply holding the asset on behalf of the fund. So all of the protection mechanisms that are available to the fund are available to the trustee under the limited recourse borrowing arrangement. And with respect to shareholdings and directorship of the Bear Trust, it doesn't matter whether Bob or Sally or both. Again, under the, strangely, under the limited recourse borrowing arrangement, you don't even need the members of the fund to be the directors of the corporate custodian under the limited recourse borrowing arrangement. But having said that, it's always recommended that it is. Okay, so that means with respect to asset protection, we don't really need to worry about SMSF, we don't really need to worry about bear trust. Those are reasonably protected from creditors, unless, of course, you can be shown to have made extra contributions quickly into your SMSF before creditors knocked on the door. Is there anything else we should say about asset protection? Well, I think we've only just touched the surface. We haven't really touched on that. We've really mainly focused on the structuring side. What I would say about the ability for creditors is coming back to, to attack is coming back to, it's about putting yourself in a position to have arguments, to negotiate outcomes. And the second thing is, if you're advising a creditor, it's always follow the money. Where did the money come from? And that's why it's really important to make sure that the structure itself won't be the end of the section. What you've got to do is make sure that you are processing the transactions properly and documenting the transactions properly to be consistent with the design of the structure. 
And the third tip I will give you is too many people, when we're talking about having an at-risk spouse and a wealth accumulation spouse, and too many people forget to cover the scenario that the wealth accumulation spouse may die and have no will or leave everything to the at-risk spouse. So having gone to a lot of trouble to divide the arrangements and provide that level of protection, it's a terrible outcome if something was to happen, not only the personal and emotional toll, but to have all those assets then come back into the fold to be at risk. So just making sure that all the loose ends are tied up is part of a sensible asset protection and estate plan. That's a very good point. Just, I know estate is a huge topic and we should cover separately, but is it possible to just say straight out, in a will, make sure the assets don't go back to the at-risk spouse, give the asset to the children? Give the asset to children, give the asset to a testamentary trust, so a discretionary trust embedded in the will. Yes, um, testamentary those types trust, of things. that would be the solution, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, yeah, you know, again, it depends on what the asset mix are. And as we said, dealing with the discretionary trusts as well that we're setting up, making sure that, that those are controlled in an appropriate way if the wealth-accumulating spouse dies. Actually, one last question. Sure. And that is, Sally shouldn't be the direct shareholder of the bucket company. The shares should really sit in a discretionary trust that Sally is then the individual trustee. The reason we say that or the reason you said that was just so that we have more flexibility who we distribute the profits to from the bucket company. Because at the That's moment, right. if we just have a pure company and Sally is the only shareholder, right. then all profits, all distributions from the bucket company have to go through Sally. That's right. Whereas when you have a discretionary trust, you could also distribute to other children over 18 or... Yeah, other trusts that may be involved in other activities, whatever you're going to do. There's a lot more flexibility. But one thing you shouldn't do is, and that is the family trust should never distribute to the SMSF, correct? No, it's not correct either. <laughs> so you just need to be conscious what are the outcomes of having that. So this is a really advanced topic. But the thing to remember at a minimum is that if a family trust distributes to a super fund, Number one, check the super funds eligible as being a beneficiary. But number two, the super fund will be taxed on that income as non-arm's length income. So it's possible to do, but the tax consequences are usually treated as being undesirable. And there are some circumstances where it's appropriate, but it needs to be done with great care. Hence this rule of thumb that is correct in 99% of the cases. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back. So here are my six learnings from this talk with Jeff Steen of Brown Steen Lawyers in Sydney. But please just regard this as entertainment and check all this with your lawyer. Learning number one. In a trading company, it is the director who is at risk but usually not the shareholder unless you have excessive dividends or personal guarantees, etc. Learning number two, if you have an at-risk spouse and a wealth-accumulating spouse, be careful that the wealth-accumulating spouse does not become a shadow director of the trading company. Learning number three, when the shares of a trading company are held by discretionary trust with a corporate trustee, it doesn't matter so much who the directors and shareholders of that corporate trustee are, 
Rather, focus on where the money went. And that trail will often take you to a bucket company. Learning number four. This bucket company is ideally held by a discretionary trust. The trust can just have an individual trustee, which is often the wealth accumulating spouse. But you don't necessarily need a corporate trustee for this discretionary trust holding the shares in the bucket company. During the interview, I forgot to ask Jeff about the CGT implications of moving the shares of an existing bucket company into a discretionary trust. So I sent him an email and asked him the following. Would moving the shares into a trust trigger CGT through CGT event E1? Let's say the company holds 1 million cash, then the shares are worth 1 million. With a cost base of nil, would E1 or 1... <laughs> Would E1 result in a capital gain of 1 million, less any discounts or concessions? End of my question. And Jeff very kindly wrote back and said, I wouldn't move shares in an existing bucket company. Even if E1 doesn't apply, A1 would. So with this in mind, you would only put the shares of a bucket company into a discretionary trust if the bucket company doesn't hold any assets yet. Otherwise, you are looking down the barrel of CGT. Learning number five. Any loan from the bucket company back to the trading company should be covered by a general security agreement, and this agreement should be registered in the PPSR to make it a secured loan. And learning number six. Super is usually the best asset protection there is. You usually can't go any safer then super. Creditors might have one possible point of attack, and that is excessive contributions, irregular in pattern, shortly before filing for bankruptcy. But apart from this, the walls around super are pretty bulletproof. In the next episode, episode 211, Grant Abbott of Light Your Dogs and I Love SMSF will talk about why you would consider setting up a leading member for your SMSF. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you on the next episode.